Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by LitBreaker. LitBreaker is an online advertising network for book people. It's how you reach book people on the internet. Do you want to reach book people on the internet with your message? Do you want to get your message out to book people on the internet? Go to LitBreaker.com for more information. Find out how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites like the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, the Paris Review, Electric Literature, the list goes on. You can advertise on the full network, all the sites, all at once. Or you can pick the sites that you want and do it piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. Go to litbreaker.com for more information. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Just everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me pretending to be on the radio. This is you holding your mobile phone like it's an injured bird. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. I'm sitting here. Uh, where are you? How's everything going for you? My guest today is Claire Hoffman. Her debut memoir is called Greetings from Utopia Park. It's available now from Harper. Uh, it's all about her childhood in Fairfield, Iowa, which is home to an intentional community founded by the late Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I think I said that correctly. The Maharishi. You guys know who that is, right? He's the guy who started TM. He's the guy behind uh, Transcendental Meditation. He's the Beatles meditation teacher. That guy. I think most people know about that. Uh, what you might not know is that he bought a defunct uh, college in Iowa many decades ago and uh, created an intentional community. He invited or summoned his uh, devotees to show up there and put down roots, which they did. And uh, it's like a little village. It's a little town with this uh, huge, uh, not huge, but relatively in the context of, the t you guys know what I'm saying. There's a lot of people in, uh, in this town that are into TM. There's a school, there's a whole infrastructure. And uh, Claire, uh, you know, she was one of them. She was raised there along with her brother by her mother in the 80s and 90s. And now she's written a memoir and uh, the memoir tells that story of what it was like to grow up there in uh, Fairfield, Iowa, in Maharishi town, <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it. So I should also mention that Claire is a buddy of mine uh, right here in Los Angeles. Our daughter's uh, we're classmates in preschool and my wife, Carrie and I 
have gotten to become uh, friends with Claire and her husband, Ben. They're great people. And uh, it's like a double thrill to see a friend of yours, uh, you know, uh, you know, obviously a friend who's a writer. That's fun for me because uh, I'm a writer and I'm into books. So to have a friend who's written a book, hang on a second. All right. Sorry about that. That was my dad. <laughs> he was calling me. I was trying to say something nice about my friend Claire, and then my phone rings, shattering my train of thought. And uh, I took the call. I don't know if it was the right thing to do. But I did it. I think that's the first time this uh, podcast has ever been interrupted by a, a phone ringing. Believe it or not. Or at least by my phone. Because no one ever calls me. <laughs> it's very rare. But as I was saying, you know, Claire is a friend of mine. Uh, she's a writer. And uh, to see her having this success is a thrill for me. I'm really happy for her. And what makes it even better is that this is a book that I would be into anyway. For those of you who listen to this show regularly, you know that uh, a memoir about growing up in Fairfield in the town that the Maharishi created, this is like right up my alley. And Claire is a very gifted writer. She's a gifted journalist as well. You may have read her work before in uh, Rolling Stone, the Los Angeles Times, like a whole list of uh, publications. So she's very accomplished, and uh, this is a book that uh, she's had in her mind for a long time, and now it's a thing, and it's a big accomplishment. So, uh, Claire Hoffman in just a moment. Otherwise, you know, what do I tell you? We're, we're in the process of moving, so that just continues to dominate my life. If you want an update. The only thing that's like sort of somewhat interesting is the fact that the, 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 the house that we're currently in and the garage that I've been recording in for the past year and change or whatever, uh, this lease runs out in uh, July. So, you know, we're going to be moving, uh, in like a week and then, or a week and change, like a week and a half, we're going to be moving. And then we'll have this place technically for another couple of weeks. And I have interviews scheduled and it just makes more sense for me to keep recording here rather than try to move it into the new house, which is going to be chaotic. So I'm going to continue to record interviews here when the house is empty <laughs> uh, until July. And I'm a little concerned that authors who show up here are going to be showing up to a completely empty home, a gutted home. And I'm going to then lead them back to a uh, empty or mostly empty garage. The only furniture that's going to be here is going to be a... Uh, an old wooden desk and some podcasting equipment. People are going to think I'm squatting. <laughs> a squatting podcaster. And, it, you know, there's a part of me that wants to ask my landlord if uh, he would mind if I just kept using this garage until he no longer needs it. Or maybe I just don't say anything and just try to keep it going for as long as I can. Keep squatting. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Claire Hoffman. Her memoir is called Greetings from Utopia Park, Surviving a Transcendent Childhood. It's available now from Harper. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking with her. I always do. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Claire Hoffman. Actually, you know what? I totally forgot to mention something. Claire Hoffman is going to be in New York City tomorrow. This episode uh, of the podcast, its original air date, June 8th, 2016. Tomorrow, Thursday, June 9th, 2016. Claire Hoffman is going to be in New York City doing a reading at the Barnes & Noble down in Tribeca on Warren Street. Uh, She's also going to lead a group meditation. Actually, she's not going to do that. She's just going to read from the book, and she's going to... Uh, sign books, I would imagine, and perhaps answer questions. If you would like to participate in that and attend that event, go to the Barnes & Noble in Tribeca on Warren Street. It starts at 6 p.m. in New York City, June 9th. Did I get that right? Okay, let's get started. This is my conversation with Claire Hoffman. It's the story of my childhood, but also hopefully about like the larger religious experience. Um, I was inspired to write it because... Uh, first of all, some crazy stuff happened, but also I think that people have gotten very like divided on the topic of religion. Uh, so I see how, you know, I have a lot of friends here in LA or in New York where I used to live where they're very cynical about religion. There's there's not much middle ground. There's not a lot of middle ground. It's like you're either like a Christopher Hitchens, uh, yeah. like there is no God, right. or you are like a, a Bible beater. Exactly. And guess what? There is a middle ground. It's right here. Yeah. <laughs> and Here too. Yeah. And yeah. And I felt like I also have a unique experience of being probably like a pretty cynical person, but also somebody who knows what it's like to believe unbelievable things and and knows how incredible that can feel well a cynical person is a disappointed idealist <laughs> so that would make sense especially being raised in uh, a utopian community yeah. yeah you know they they told us that we were brahmin reincarnated oh really yes we had leadership classes so wait just so for people listening yes, sorry you were raised uh for most of your childhood in Fairfield, Iowa? I grew up in Fairfield, Iowa, and I was a longtime student of the Marishi School of the Age of Enlightenment. Which is? Which is a, um elementary and high school that uh, uses the teachings of Marishi Mahesh Yogi and his philosophy on life uh, to give children a consciousness-based education. Okay, and the Maharishi was like the um, meditation guru... Uh, sort of like the meditation guru of 60s counterculture. Yeah, he, he was, was the sort Beatles. of the guy. Yeah. He, you know, he he had the Beatles, some of the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones, a lot of celebrities. I mean, there was like at some point where it was like 5% of Americans practiced TM. 
Um, it had had like a real. Has it gone down since then? Like it's it had a, like it's high water mark back then because I feel like it's res- there's a resurgence now with like there's David definitely Lynch a and- resurgence. I mean, what happened was so Marushi came to the United States in the early '60s and he was immediately swept up in you know with different sort of spiritualists, right? People who were interested in meditation and there had already been this sort of wave of interest in yoga dating back to the World's Fair, but. Um, he was really good at getting his message out there and finding um, high-profile people to connect with who would become sort of evangelists for him. Not not like entirely dissimilar to what Scientology does in its like active recruitment of celebrities. I know that the I, I know there are significant differences, but from a from a marketing perspective, it's a similar strategy. No, it's a similar strategy. It's also a strategy that pretty much every brand yeah. and corporation uses now. So it's right. not it's not that original. Yeah, but it is, I think, a bit of a leap to um, be a you know a spiritual undertaking or religion or whatever you want to call it, and to be employing that strategy. Um, I think that's that's a little bit new. I don't I don't know. Maybe not. E- yes and no. I mean the idea of being evangelical about your beliefs goes back a long ways. I do think um, Marishi really recognized the power of celebrity and so did L. Ron Hubbard. So I think there is shared ground there. Yeah. Um, that's about the most shared ground that I see, but we can, we can get into that if you want. <laughs> yeah, no. But you know, and so Marishi, it was this, he trademarked transcendental meditation he uh, started the Students International Movement. It was on college campuses all across America, late 60s, early 70s. That's when my mom learned. And it was $35. It was 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. And it was this idea of taking meditation sort of out of the caves, like out of the sacred tradition and making it for what he called the householder class. Right, and so it was for just the average person to be able to have meditation in their life, and it was a, it was sort of an original idea at the time. He was on the cover of Life and Time, and you know, having a mantra was a thing. What's um, your mantra? <laughs> no way, no way. <laughs> it's like I, I am, I'm an unbeliever, but I will never tell you that. You're not supposed because that's the thing about TM. You're not supposed to share your mantra with anybody. You're not, but. Uh, one of the big moments for me as a kid was when my 14 year old boyfriend whispered his mantra in my ear and it was also my mantra. Whoa. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I thought I was special. (laughs) Um, What if everyone has the same mantra? There's nobody knows. uh, They're on the internet. So now you can see. Oh really? Thanks internet. You can see whose mantra is whose or just like what the different mantras are. You can see they do it by age and gender. Oh, According to the internet. According to Wikipedia um, or something? You'll find it. You'll find it. If you want to find it, it's out there. Okay. So your mom of your parents, was your mother the one who got into it first? They met at a Transcendental Meditation Retreat. Okay. Where Nigeria. was this? It was in Hemet, also where the Scientologists are now, strangely. <laughs> Weird. That's where Gold Base is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. I did a story out there when I was working for the LA Times. You went to Gold Base? Oh, yeah. And I, I felt so strange because it's like where my story started. Wow. I know. But anyway, it used to just be a, a resort and conference center that people could rent out. And 
they met there. You know, my dad was like a young writer, playwright um, from Santa Cruz, and he was really kind of battling his demons. Like he was trying to kind of get sober and quit smoking and be a better person. And my mom was sort of like a real sweetheart. It was just really into TM. And I don't know if they necessarily showed each other their true selves. <laughs> what, in TM or just in general? Uh, I would just say, I mean, my dad has said this, that he felt like he didn't, he wasn't honest with my mom about all of his demons. Like, I don't think she knew he was an alcoholic until after they got married. The useful information. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure. Um, you know, my mom definitely was the more dedicated of the two. So just to fast forward, you know, my dad left um, when I was five years old. He just disappeared. We went out of town for the weekend, and when he came back, he was gone. And he had been drinking all the time. I mean, my mom said that we probably hadn't even seen him the last year that he lived with us. And you were in New York City? Yeah. We were living in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Okay. And, you know, I mean, we got an eviction notice, like, the next day. Um, and... My mom kind of struggled to figure out what to do. We lived with my grandmother in Florida for a little bit, and then she decided to move to Fairfield, Iowa, because, coincidentally, Marishi had just put a call out to all his followers to move to Iowa uh, to be part of this new community that he was starting. He wasn't there, but he was starting it. Right. So he did all of this remotely. All of it remotely. And people listened. Oh, yes. They answered the call. They answered the call. So what do they do? Like, Did he buy property and, and buy facilities? Yes. And, okay. So he bought a bankrupt university. He'd actually bought it in 1974. Uh, it was Parsons College, which was this sort of infamous uh, little college in Fairfield, Iowa, that had been uh, called Flunk Out U. It was like where dropouts from all over the country could go to school. Okay. It's like the <laughs> Trump still- University of its time. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. They still have reunions, um, which is funny. Uh, but so they bought this this kind of crumbling, bankrupt university. It was like 272 acres. And uh, he started Marshy International University. He designed the curriculum. People moved there. He had all these like really young, bright college students who were totally dedicated to him. So it's sort of like Naropa. Yes. Like kind of the same thing, yes. but maybe with a bigger, but, but bigger. A stronger philosophy, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Like Naropa, I, like it, I never could quite wrap my head around it. There was I, like the Jack Kerouac school of disembodied poetics. Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> I don't actually totally understand Naropa. It seems cool, but yeah. uh, I don't think there was like a single. Well, there's like, it was Chogyam Trungpa. Yes. Who was the, the, the guy there when he was still alive and. There's some crazy stories. There's some crazy stories. Like W.S. Merwin and his wife. Did, I read something about how like he insisted that they get naked in front of everyone. And they, yes. they were like, fuck no. Yeah. And then like Chogim got hammered and like like you know, like broke a glass bottle and like threatened them. And Yes. You know, it was like that kind of scene. It was a little chaotic. It's a little chaotic. I will say the thing about the TM movement is nobody drinks and nobody does drugs. It was clean. It's super clean. And a lot of people that were uh, really devoted followers of Marishi also practiced celibacy. I was going to say, like, so nothing weird sexually? Like, no, like, like you know. Well, if you don't think celibacy is weird. Well, I mean, I just <laughs> meant like, I meant like, you know, like it's like very polyamorous. You know, I know. No. And, and you know what? To each his own. I'm right. not condemning polyamory. If it's that's so your thing It's interesting that polyamorous is bad for you, but celibacy is okay. <laughs> that's basically me. Uh, no, but I, you know, I guess I just meant like there's nothing untoward happening where it's like things got dark and weird and like, you know, culty and. Well, I think things got strange. Things definitely, over time, I think there were 
uh, stuff that started developing. I kind of have a theory that in these groups, there's always like a thing, you know, like the shadow yeah. that you can't, they can't help it. You know I mean? The Catholic church being like the most sort of mega example. Right. Um, abuse of power, abuse of power, but it comes out in these different ways, whether it's sex or money or violence. So what was it with, uh, with TM and Maharishi? In my opinion, it, it was money. Well, because I should say this, uh, I have never done it. Right. I mean, I've, I've done it like using the internet, but I've never taken the course and paid the $3,000 or whatever it costs to get a TM mantra. And yeah, I think educate. it's less than that now. It changes okay. with but the it, market. But it's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive. It's not cheap to, to meditate. They don't. I mean, it seems like something that people should just share if it's this helpful, but he charges. He charges. I or mean, they will. He's, he's no longer with he's us. He's no longer but. with with you. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's with me right now. Um, uh, what they would say to that, just to to be fair, is that they TM teachers. That's their profession. Sure. So they get. That's how they get paid. Sure. Um, and so that's the the model for spreading it. But and it also it it also uh, ascribes value. Yes, that was the other thing. I mean, when I was growing up, we were told, and my mom said this to me, and everyone kind of repeated it, that Marishi said that Americans don't value things unless they pay for it. I think there's some truth to it. I think, like, <laughs> no, because I've been to, like, yoga classes, you know, like those yoga studios that are really crunchy, and it's like, pay whatever you think is right. Right. And you know what people do? They don't pay. Yeah. <laughs> there's, like, a few people who are like, here's $100, you know, or whatever, but everyone else is like, great. You know, and like, do you feel like the finer feeling level is higher at say hot eight where you're paying 30 bucks? I mean, I don't know. I, don't, I think there's a happy median. I think you can yeah. overpay. Like some of these classes are ridiculous. Yes. Um, but I think when you don't tell, like, I think people prefer to be told what it, what it costs. Yes. And hopefully like the price is fair, but that's, you know, that's a subjective thing. Well, I think now, I mean, TM, since Marishi's died, the, the price of TM has gone down, which is fantastic. And that's part of sort of this reformation that's happening. With, what does it cost? I think it's like twelve or $1,400. Okay. It does change. And there's all sorts of scholarships through David Lynch now. Like they, I want to get a scholarship. Okay. I'll you up. <laughs> is this what this is? <laughs> that's the only reason you're here. I want a David yeah. Lynch scholarship. Well, you should be careful what questions you ask. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but so what, and the, what is the $1,200 or $1,400 buy you? And, 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 you know, along with the mantra, you also get, well, you get about three days of instruction. This is always funny for me to, I feel like I'm put in the sales position position and I do like TM. I meditate, but I'm always like, I will not teach you. I will not suggest you learn. Um, but yeah, it's a three day, uh, course and then you're initiated, you get your mantra and then you can follow up for the rest of your life. You can go back in and get like a tune-up. Go tune back up. anytime. Tune-up. Okay. And then, okay. So, so you, and th they would say that's a great value. So you sit down. Let's let's take people through. Do you want me to teach you Yeah, meditate? the basic TM. Like, I mean, I meditate uh, daily, uh -huh. but I don't do I TM. That. I get yeah. that from you. <laughs> is it the glow? It people the glow. often tell me that I have a light. Like, yeah. It's like a light is glowing inside me. It's, I noticed. Um, so you sit down. You mm -hmm. have a two-syllable mantra. Uh, let's see. I don't know if mine's, I think mine might be one. Okay. So you have a mantra, but uh, it's a simple word. Yes. Sort of a nonsense word. Well, it's, it has meaning, debatable. but it, okay. Yes. You sit down, <laughs> <laughs> you, 
You have your mantra. Do you like that everything I'm going to say right now I'm going to say is debatable? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's okay because I just want to give listeners like a, yes. a, an idea of the experience. Basically, you sit down, you uh, sit quietly for a few, maybe 30 seconds or so, and then you start saying your mantra to yourself. And you can do it for any amount of time. Silently saying it. Silently saying it to yourself and you don't, there's no pressure. You can stop saying it. There's no pattern. It's it's sort of not the point. It's like beside the point. And, and it, are you thinking like like true. what ha- what happens to uh, Claire Hoffman's thought processes? Like all your worries about publication. Let's say you meditated today. It's like my right. book's coming out. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this podcast. Like yeah. all those all that chattering is happening in your brain. And then you have your mantra. Do you just like watch the thinking and then go back to the mantra, or what do you what do you do? It's almost like you. They say like you don't mind the thinking. You aren't even watching it or witnessing it or making a judgment about it. You just sort of, like, let it pass by. Okay. Um, when I am really stressed out, I have trouble meditating. Sure. I think I think everyone does, right? Yeah, but I feel like, you know, like, living in Fairfield, it's like meditation was supposed to solve everything. But for me, exercise or drinking or drugs <laughs> are better for me. Also effective. <laughs> well, but it's like... It's like uh... It doesn't stop you from suffering. I think it just makes you suffer less. Yes. It's like suffer better. It's like a little bit more artful way of handling it. And I should say, just to be clear, like I think that, you know, drinking and drugs, you know, can provide a temporary salve, but it's ultimately fool's gold. I mean, you're going to, you're suffering. Is it like the lady, the nice lady from Rhode Island who has like two gin and tonics every night for the rest of her life? Really? Can we pass judgment on her? No, I mean... I don't want to, I don't, I'm not comfortable in the position of like arbiter, you know, like, like yeah. final word on this stuff, but I just speak from my own experience that I, I don't think it's quite the same. I feel like it's a numbing as opposed to, um, like a real acknowledgement or a real leaning in. And I think that that numbing, I mean, again, it, and I guess it depends on how moderate you are in your intake. I mean, if you're really getting, um, fucked up and you're uh, behaving weird, you know, wildly or um harming your health in a significant way you wake up with a terrible hangover that has a that has a um an effect on you you know it's a corrosive effect mentally emotionally physically absolutely and i meditate every day and i don't drink every day so that's one thing on the other hand i grew up around people who were meditating a lot and a lot of them it was not aspirational you know i mean it, it, it can do things to you you i mean i think it's your personality so you have People who are meditating three or four hours a day who become unbearable to be around, frankly. Unbearable. Highly sensitive. So easily stressed out. So easily stressed out, right? Like, these are people that you think you're supposed to have, like, not a care in the world. But they, you know, it turns out meditation can become a form of controlling your environment, right? And controlling yourself. Right. So I find, you know, I mean, the sort of joke as teenagers about our parents or our teachers was like how flustered we could get them so quickly, you know, by just being slightly disrespectful or slightly chaotic, you know, that you could send them into like total crisis mode. Well, okay. So a personal experience, like I'll find sometimes, like sometimes when I meditate, I come out and I'm calmer. Yes. Other times when I meditate, um, because I think when you're quiet and you're confronted with your uh, habitual patterns of thought, many of which center on your suffering, for lack of a better word, your anxieties, your worries, your despair, your uh, concerns about the past, you know, all that stuff comes up. And sometimes you can come out in an agitated state yeah. because you haven't 
been able to settle. Maybe you didn't have enough time, you know, because or maybe it's just not your day, right. not you know. Day. And so you can come out and you can be a little coiled and you can be it can be at the surface. It's like you're you're sensitive. Yeah. Um, that's obviously not the ideal outcome, but I do think there's something positive. Uh, I like to believe there's something positive to be gained from being in touch with that um, as opposed to like having it subsurface and repressed or uh, do you see what I'm saying? I, think- I do. And I do. And I, part of writing this book is really supporting people in their beliefs. So I am with you. Okay. <laughs> That's a very <laughs> diplomatic thing to say. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to my diplomacy. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it's not the answer, but I, I also don't think there's an answer. Yeah. So, I mean, meditation, because it gets tricky too. You know, you don't want to proselytize. You don't want to um, intrude on someone else's thing. Uh, but it, to me, it's just like awareness of what's going on within you and around you. It's like generating yeah. awareness and being awake in your life mm-hmm. and not being caught in your brain in the past or the future and being alive to what's real, which is the, the present moment, which can sound hokey. But it feels to me objectively true. It's the only real moment. Everything else is in your mind. Right. And, and I think knowing that is an extremely powerful thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, for me, you know, I mean, this is tricky because I can kind of make jokes about meditation or people who've gotten nutty with meditation, but I also feel super lucky. I've been meditating since I was three. Like my sure. entire sense of self has to do with meditation. So I... You know, as I've gotten older, I feel like I hear people all the time, especially now, all the time, talking about, like, how stressed out they are, how busy they are, how overwhelmed they are. And I do think, you know, I mean, part of this resurgence of TM and meditation in general is just this crazy black swan of technology in a heavily wired world. Sure. And so I, I feel compassion for people who, and I've been there, where you can't stop your thoughts. You can't stop thinking you're, you're caught in that. And so, yeah, I mean, meditation is fantastic for that. And, you know? and this is the thing too, is that it's not a belief system. I know that it can sort of be like entwined with one, mm-hmm. but it's a practice. It's a thing you do, not a thing you believe though. There can be an ideology. And I, I mean, you tell me there can be an ideological construct built around it, but that's part of the appeal to me is that it's like, it's a thing I can actively do as opposed to like holding on to a belief. Right. So I would say for me, meditation now is not attached to any beliefs, right? right. It's, and, and, it, and that's taken me a long time to get there. I think living as a kid in Fairfield, Iowa and being part of the transcendental meditation movement in the 1980s and 90s, very much in a time and a place, it was, there was tons of beliefs and tons of restrictions. That's when things get bad. <laughs> as soon as people start to have beliefs, you know, belief systems and ideology, it starts to, it can get rigid, it can get hierarchical, Yes, all that stuff sort of comes into play. Right. And so, I mean, for me, this book kind of goes over an arc. So when we first got there, I, um, it felt incredible to believe these things and everyone's meditating all the time and people are very positive. There's a huge emphasis on positivity, speaking the sweet truth, you know, being representing, embodying the ideal qualities of, of Marishi's knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone was sort of trying to be at a higher state of consciousness, 
people aren't drinking, people aren't doing drugs. Like it's not a nonviolent community. Nothing you've said so far sends up a red flag for me. It all sounds good. It was fantastic. Yeah. And that's sort of a part of this book is how good that felt. But for me over time, that changed. There were more and more restrictions. Uh, the path to enlightenment became increasingly commodified. So, you know, while it was at first just meditation, then it was about the philosophy, the science of creative intelligence, and then there was the entire system of health, Maharishi Ayurveda, and then there was an entire system of architecture and home building uh, and design, Maharishi Stapacha Veda. There was also Maharishi astrology, Maharishi Jyotish. There was also Maharishi gemstones was and it sound re- waves. Oh, my, I mean, so this is this is the empire. <laughs> this is the empire. And is it all coming from him unilaterally? Was there like a governing body? Was there any group mind? You know what I'm saying when it came to um, power decisions, or was it really just him? Oh no, there was an entire. There was the administration. Okay. Kind of with a capital A there. Transparent. Democratic. No. no. Okay. No. There was the administration. There was also often money and decisions were made at international, mm-hmm. uh, which was always sort of a vague location. Was it India? Was it Europe? Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny because like, I think about something like this and I can imagine, and I'm, I'm totally speculating, but I can imagine that the Maharishi and his you know executive team or whatever mm-hmm. were probably thinking to themselves, like we, we really, they really believed like, oh, they believe we're changing the world for the better, but I could imagine them saying we need to do X, Y, and Z because we need the money. And the reason we need the money is not to enrich ourselves, but because without money, we cannot change the world as fast. Sure. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you could, I could see that how you could rationalize a lot of behaviors with that logic. Yeah. I, I find, um, the people that I grew up with and that I encounter today who are real true believers, to be entirely genuine in their belief. Yeah. I don't I don't think it's a con. And do you believe the Maharishi is an enlightened being? Uh, you know, in my book, I quote Deepak Chopra, who was Maharishi's doctor. That's sort of was his... He was origin- his, like, Ayurvedist or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Uh, originally, he was like a young doctor. And Maharishi, you met him, you met Deepak when you were a kid. He would come, he came to the Maharishi school, and which he was sort of, a, for a while kind of the heir apparent to Maharishi until they had a falling out. Uh-huh. As one does. As one does. <laughs> <laughs> With all heir apparents. Um, but he, he said this thing to me, which resonated where there's a very, it's a razor's edge between genius and psychosis. And I, I kind of agree with that. I think Maharishi was a human being, uh, which is... As was the Buddha. Sure. I, and, you know, and Jesus, I think. I think we're, they were all people. They're people, and they have... They're made up of people things like vices and virtues and ambition and longing and desire. And I don't think he was allowed to be that for us. And he didn't represent himself as that to us. He represented himself as a god? Uh, he was called His Holiness Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. So is the Dalai Lama. Yeah. I, I don't know. I didn't go to the Dalai Lama school. <laughs> I wasn't subjected to the There's Dalai still Lama. Time. Yeah, I mean, I, think, I don't knows? know if the Dalai Lama didn't have, but I mean, you know, the Pope is His Holiness. Like these, he, but he basically presented himself as a major, like as a religious figure, as a. Uh, the, no, so TM says it's not a religion. Okay, it's not a religion. But he's His Holiness. 
Jesus Holiness. It's complicated. It's guru stuff. It's guru stuff. So what do you think about that? Because these things have, you know, they, they, they happen in various uh, ways in all different kinds of belief systems where you have like the, the guru who right. springs up like uh, not not drawing a direct comparison, but it is somewhat similar. And uh, but like Charles Manson. Sure, like sure. it can happen there. That's a really dark. I mean, it's tough for me. It's tough for me to even make that comparison, <laughs> even though I'm cynical. I'm not that cynical. Yeah, but, but I mean, yeah. I'm just saying, like the dark end of the spectrum. Right. You know, you can have some guy who springs up, and like it's it's a weird thing to think about because people follow. Yes. And they they do consider him to be like some sort of enlightened being, and that was the case back then. Yeah. And then on the you know then you have like the Dalai Lama or right. You know these more benign, much more benign figures. You know. I mean, I think all kinds of things about this. So, for example, I was on I. Um, you know, maybe five years ago, six years ago, I would go on, on, uh, this meditation retreat that was sort of vaguely Buddhist. And I really liked the guy who led it. He was a cool guy. He seemed really like a TM guy. Nope. Not who was TM. It? His name was Adi Ashanti. Okay. He's kind of like a big name in that world, whatever world that is. Yeah. Um, but I liked him. Like it was the first time I felt like I could listen to somebody talk about like being and meditation and not get grossed out. Well, this this is the thing, though, is that it it matters greatly who your teachers are. Right. Like this stuff, like it can be spun all sorts of different ways. Little things can infect it. Yes. That, like you know what I'm saying. And if you don't, if you if you don't have a teacher who is um, pure of heart, and I put that in quotes because yeah, we're all human. Nobody. I'm not saying they have to be perfect, but that, like an honest broker, right? With humility, you know, like it can be. But I, I think it's a two-way street. Okay. You know what I mean? So, like, what I would say with Adi Ashanti is he, he he seems like a wonderful, humble human being. One day I saw him walk in and a woman follow him afterwards and go down on her knees and kiss the ground where he walked. And that was it for me. I couldn't go back. Yeah, yeah. See, me neither. Would be like... He wasn't saying that was okay, but it happened. And it was starting to happen more and more around him. Did he, did he tell her, like, get up? No, he wasn't looking. But... I mean, you should know that that's happening. People right. tell you. So for me, I mean, when I started out this book, you know, I had an idea of like, when I start, first started working on it, like, you know, Marishi did this to us, right? Like he, he made this community kind of crazy. Like he was in control. And, and he was I, never there. He was never there. Did you, ever, did you ever meet him? I never met him. You ever see him in person? I saw him in person once. He was like what? He was tiny. He was small. Okay. Yeah. Well, how did you feel when you saw him? He was very, very far away. And, and you felt great. <laughs> <laughs> he was very, very far away and he glowed. Uh, I mean, he burped, if I remember correctly. Did he really? Yeah, he belched. He was kind of into belching. Into it, like, because he was so free or I something. Guess, yeah. He didn't care. Yeah. Um, but I would say by the time I finished the book, I felt like we did it to ourselves, right? So who cares what Marishi was or wasn't? I think, you know, the question of teachers, it's about giving up power, you know, like if you give up your power, it doesn't matter how good your teacher is. You've given up your power. Right. But I also get it. I think there's something about letting go and being and surrendering that can lead to these like ecstatic experiences. So I understand why people do it. And, well, and also we need teachers like, you know, maybe not forever, but, uh, but it seems like we should always be learning. Like I had a science teacher when I was growing up, like, thank goodness. Right. I wasn't left to my own devices on that. So there is a, a place in the world for like spiritual teachers, people who know more than we do about this stuff. But the problem is that I think there's so much power over others that can be 
gained particularly like my biology teacher was not going to be able to control me unless they were really <laughs> like a sophisticated con right. uh, artist the same way that like a spiritual guru could who's you know dealing in human suffering and right. the ways to ameliorate that suffering and like that's a different thing well i think you know i mean the problem that i saw with marishi and the problem i see with this is that you say like somebody who knows more than we, you do about spirituality i like i actually immediately like flinch when you say that because I feel like that's the setup. As soon as one person is elevated above another person, looking down at you and saying, this is the meaning of life. This is how we get there. This is how you live. It's problematic to me. Mm. You know, and I think there's something about a person who elevates themselves above other people and says, I see something you don't. I know something you don't. Um, I am less human than you. I'm closer to the divine than you. Follow me on this path to the divine. I think it becomes problematic. Now that makes me sound like I'm anti-religion or anti-belief. I'm not. I think it's beautiful and powerful. And as I said at the beginning, I'm in the middle ground, but I find, I think the problem is within us where we're trying to not be human beings and not have these problems, not have these struggles, not have this pain. And you find religious teachers who are humble and who acknowledge that and acknowledge their own complexity. Yeah. And I think so much too, like, I think sometimes too, it's like, uh, I'm very, I'm very wary in the way that you just described when I'm talking to someone or listening to someone who's dealing at the level of mythology. Right. When someone's talking about practice, yeah. <laughs> systems of systems of approach, like uh, systems, um, I guess systems of thought or behavior designed to help us deal with our pain. Right. That seems different to me. Yeah. You know, as opposed to like this happened thousands of years ago and there's right. this supernatural thing happening that I know about and Right, where and they're resuscitating each ancient knowledge yeah, as it, like an enlightened seer. Yeah. yeah I just like I like it to be more practical than that. Mm -hmm. And I think at the level of practical knowledge I'm willing to accept that there are people who know way more than I do yeah. about about a, a whole number of things, you know, right. including stuff that's not involved in spirituality. Is this where you start talking about how good you are at yoga? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, just all roads lead here, don't they, Brad? <laughs> I can do a handstand. Yeah, yep. I well, can that makes one 40. of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you started, you said, as a teenager to become disaffected. Is that when it started for you? Well, I had like a real sort of breaking moment when I was 12 years old. So what happened? I, well, just a little background is that my dad came back that year. Oh. So my dad came back, he had gotten sober, he came to Iowa and he was, you know, he was a cynic. He was like a cosmopolitan, funny guy who watched Saturday Night Live and he started to ask me questions about the school that I was going to and the way that we were living and about living in Utopia Park. How long had, how long had it been since you'd seen him? It was uh, six years. Oh, wow. So maybe seven. Were you in touch? Not for a lot of that. He totally disappeared. That was it. Yeah. Okay. And look how normal I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> just kidding. Now I got, I got lost in that. <laughs> um, oh, right. So uh, when I was 12 years old... Uh, we got called into like an emergency school assembly. It was November 1989. And everyone from from the school got hustled over to the auditorium. And uh, 
one of the administrators who has what has been the president of the university for decades is on stage he's he's practically weeping i think he may have been weeping and he announced that because our meditations had been so strong and so powerful for the last week uh that we had torn down the gray wall and for some reason that just didn't add up to me that was you mean the berlin wall the berlin wall yeah not the great wall of china (laughs) he called it the great wall we did it we tore it down it's gone Fantastic. (laughs) it's a hoax um no the berlin wall yeah because like that was like the thing you know the maharishi believed that if you got a certain number of people you got a, a huge number of people in this town to meditate collectively that the power of that would have a ripple effect and change the world it would send some sort of positive vibration Right. So so to go back, you have TM is incredibly mainstream, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I think the year I was born, or maybe right around this, 1976, 1977, he introduces uh, the TM city technique. And this is an advanced form of meditation. Cities uh, that come from the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, and they, they, they're supposed to mean superpowers. And there's early advertisements that say, like, strength of an elephant, you'll be able to walk through walls, you may become invisible, and, of course, levitation. Yeah. And that was when it really contracted the popularity. You know, first of all, it was very expensive. It was thousands of dollars to learn the flying technique. And most people didn't believe that you could fly. But Do you believe that you can fly? <laughs> uh, well, that's a good question. Have you I, done it? Have you levitated? I've had, I've, I've taken the yoga flying course uh-huh. and I went back after I had my daughter, my first daughter, and I had a transcendent experience, but how I, many minutes were, how many minutes into it were you before you had this experience? Uh, like three weeks. But I mean like how many, was it, how long was the sit? Well, let's see. I think you do regular TM for about 40 minutes and then you do these the cities, which are these um, slightly more complicated mantras. sutras okay. and mantras. You memorize them. I have them memorized. And then that can lead to levitation. The last sutra is levitation. Wow. Yeah. How good of a meditator are you? Because it is a skill. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, it is. You've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. So like how... I should be better. But, you know, I think everyone, it's like you have good, you know, some sessions are better than others. I'll say this, you know, I mean, I had a really transcendent experience doing the flying technique. I don't do it. It's not part of my life. You know, I came home to Los Angeles. She's levitating right now. Yeah, exactly. I'm hovering above the seat. (laughs) I don't do it, I swear. Um, And it just didn't feel like part of my life. It was too kind of mystical and out there and strange. It kind of takes a long time. It takes a really long time. I've never had the time to to meditate three hours a day, not even one day with my family. Have I ever had that? Like 20 minutes is a feat. Yeah, 20 minutes. Uh, But I would say that doing that, and I, during that course, you know, I was meditating sometimes seven hours a day, like huge amounts of time. now, my regular TM practice, which is the same mantra I've had since I was 10. Which is? Not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Uh, is great. Like, it is fantastic. You like it. Yeah, it got, it changed it for me. I don't know why or how, but somehow all that meditating, all that other stuff that I mostly don't do, now my, my regular practice of TM is great. Well, I think a couple things come to mind. First of all, like that sort of intensive practice at anything you get better. 
that's a lot of meditating. Most people, I think, they think of seven hours a day. That's that doesn't sound that fun to them. <laughs> it's um, intense. <laughs> it's intense, and it's a lot of time to be with yourself. Mm-hmm. The other thing that comes to mind, and then this like go, this speaks to the experience at this intensive, but it also speaks to your entire experience throughout your life of living in Fairfield, is that I have found that there's power. It's powerful to meditate with other people. Like there's something to group energy. Yeah. And like, I know that it, it, people can start to roll their eyes when you start talking about group energy. Mm-hmm. But if you sit in a room with other people who are in a meditative state, you feel it. Yeah. It's not, I mean, maybe I'm, my head is playing tricks on me. Do you, do you agree or? Oh yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I don't think I would organize my life around it. Um, the way that people in Fairfield did, but yeah. You can have really powerful experiences in a group, but honestly, Brad, sometimes I feel that at Soul Cycle. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I feel I can feel that at a yoga class. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can feel that at a rock concert. Right. Like I think that would be maybe the more mainstream experience that everyone could probably relate to. Is you, yeah. you go into a rock show, and it's like before the show. Right. And then all of a sudden, those house lights come down. Right. And that roar of the crowd happens, and you feel like the hair on your, you know, yeah. it's just like oh my you god. You all get taken to a place together. And and it's real. Yeah. You know, and so I just think that like when it comes to uh, mindfulness, and mindfulness, in my understanding of it, is a kind of energy that you're trying to generate when you're meditating, like. Hmm. You know, like an electrical plant generates electricity. When you're sitting there, you're generating essentially awareness. Right. And I think that there's something to a group of people generating kind of like a field of that energy that if you are in a, like a lower energy state or in a state of lesser concentration, you can sort of tap into and draw on and yeah. draw some strength from. It sounds like you're describing the Marishi effect right now. <laughs> Maybe so. You <laughs> Therefore, know. if the square root of 1% of the population practices these forms of meditation then world, that, world peace yeah and i mean i don't know Sounds i don't know like if it, you need to move to fairfield i think <laughs> i might need to just pack it in uh i'm too yeah i'm always like I, I'm, I'm i think we're kind of similar like i'm really idealistic in a lot of ways but yeah. there's always like that cynical part of me that's like nah. i don't know i feel like the inside of me is just a huge asshole mm. i mean i think i had something i guess you're saying you're an idealist, but I grew up feeling like the black sheep because I was like, wait, that's stupid. That's and did def- you, and you had, you have a brother. I have a brother. And so what, what, what was his experience of this? Like if you were the black sheep, was he the shining star who embraced it all? Or? He certainly, he got better grades for a long time than I did. And he, I remember him getting the ideal student award. It's not a big deal. I'm still not mad about it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but I would also say that maybe that made it his sort of disenchantment harder you know i think he still struggles with it like i do like yeah yeah like when you believe and you're like really good and then the thing starts to come apart yeah i mean stacy wasn't like uh he wasn't always the ideal student but i think i think that's true for a lot of kids there i mean there are there is like a dark side to this you know i mean i am pro meditation i like fairfield it's a nice place you know my daughter learned to meditate I have a lot of wonderful memories of it, but there is like the flip side of this. I think there's a lot of kids who came out of that school who have really struggled with the disenchantment. You know, like if you grow up thinking that there's a set of rules and ideas that govern the universe, and then you You start, actually enter the universe. Then you enter <laughs> the universe and you see hypocrisy everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to move past that. And I've found, you know, I mean, there's certainly a lot of kids who are 
have addiction issues. There's a lot, there's been like a number of suicides and I think there's a nihilism that comes out of it. I see it in a lot of the kids, including myself where it's like, well, fuck it. Mm. It just makes me think of like the necessity of like really good teachers, but then also the willingness to assume primary responsibility for your own education. And I think if you take too much stuff at face value and then there's like that, that dissonance, like that difference between, you know, the utopian kind of cocoon and then the quote unquote real world, it can be jarring. I think for me, it's about questioning everything. You know, I see it there now where there's stuff people don't want to ask questions about and they would rather just don't ask, don't tell. Mm, Like what? (laughs) Um, So, for example, in the last 10 years, they've had a group of Indian men move to outside of Fairfield. Okay. Uh, They call them pundits. Like like pundits? Like pundits. Okay. Uh, They're uh, uh, sort of from a particular patriarchal tradition, religious tradition in India. Most of them have gone to special Marishi schools in India. And they're trained in meditation in the cities, but also these ceremonies. They call them yagyas. So uh, the numbers are much smaller now, but until very recently, there were over a thousand of them living outside of Fairfield in something called that sort of locally is known as Pundit Village. Okay. Entirely isolated from the community. Um, and I, I don't love it. Yeah. I don't love it. I have a lot of questions about it. They make about they make fifty dollars a month, and then one hundred and fifty dollars is sent home. They're here on religious visas. They live in trailers. Um, there was an uprising. An uprising? There was an uprising a what couple does that years mean? ago. I mean, this is, it's all its own complicated story, but uh, they had one of the administrators decide to have one of the guys leave. They were kicking him out for behavioral issues, but I think he was kind of a leader in the community. I mean, the, 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 in the pundit community, I mean, the rumor in Fairfield was that he had kind of become a guru himself. Mm -hmm. That's like the worst sin you can commit. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so they tried to take him out early in the morning and they called the sheriff for backup and they, they rioted. They tried to overturn the sheriff's car. They broke his windows. Wow. Yeah. Some angry pundits. 80 angry pundits. Damn. You know, it's like, it's, it makes me think about like, um, groups of human beings, any group. Right. And trying to, from, from everything from a family, like a family is like the, you know, kind of like the smallest common denominator. It's hard to, to, to cultivate a happy, healthy family. Right. Then you have like thousands of people, even dozens or hundreds of people. It's really, really hard to run a healthy group. I think it is really hard. I wouldn't try it myself personally. You have a family. <laughs> I do have a family. It's true. <laughs> it scares me. I'm scared of them. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Kind of. Uh, <laughs> but I think what I've seen during, in those different kind of groups is that once the beliefs become bigger than the experience itself and you're trying to get everything to adhere to the belief, then it becomes problematic. And, and you sublimate everything at the expense of that, right? So who cares about, you know, minimum wage if they're generating peace? 
right? Maybe it's not. They would. They wouldn't make that much in India, right? Right. That's the logic. That's the way it goes. Yeah. Um, when did you? When did you? drop out or did you did you officially just like say to hell with all that i'm out of here yeah i mean that's part of why you know people draw comparisons with scientology and i've reported on scientology i i don't really see the similarities yeah that was, like in scientology people blow yeah which i've always found to be fun that's <laughs> <laughs> sort of nautical um <laughs> it's also sort of sci-fi like yeah blue fuse or, oh yeah you know. blow cool yeah, yeah but i feel like he was really into the boat so it might have been nautical yeah um I just left. Yeah, I was 17. I told my mom I wanted to move in with my dad. He was living here in Los Angeles. And I was it was really pragmatic. I was like And you guys were on better terms? Like did he Yes. So once he came back when you were 12. I was super into my dad. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, he's awesome. So you guys okay, so then I mean, flawed. My I, mom was amazing. My mom took care of us and worked like a million jobs and was there. Yeah, that's no, that's no easy feat. That's no easy feat, but my dad was funny. Right. <laughs> so he's like, the, he's like like the easy parent, hard parent kind oh. of thing. Oh yeah, it was really writ large. Obviously, I, I can only imagine how uh, annoyed my mom was when I was seventeen and announced oh, that I yeah. was leaving after all that work. Yeah, be like but, see ya. Yeah, but you know, I'm I'm 39 now, and I'm still I'm 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 pro mom. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I I said I was going to finish my last year of high school in Los Angeles and I was going to get in-state tuition to go to a UC. I had it all planned out. Where did you, uh, where did you go to high school? Here? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, this was not... I mean, after being at the Maharishi yeah. private school, where do you, how do you well, transition? So first I, I was at the Maharishi School of the Age of Enlightenment through eighth grade. And then in ninth grade, we didn't have enough money for me to uh, keep going, nor my brother. So we switched to the townie high school okay um and i went to fairfield high school for ninth 10th and 11th grade okay and that was a high school it's about 400 kids right good school decent probably by most standards i mean to me it was like the jungle (laughs) (laughs) after after you know just i mean you know at the marishi school if you were tired then you should take a nap if you had cramps from your period you should stay home you know like if you you you, it was all about the effortlessness of life so it was really um there was much that was very gentle about that education i like it yeah that sounds great (laughs) i mean i Basically, I went to graduate school for journalism and had to have my professor there give me his second grade grammar book because I missed some fundamentals. Yeah. Um, but I wrote a book now. Yeah, look at you. <laughs> uh, don't look for errors. Um, but yeah, I um, so that was like 400 kids, the Fairfield High School. And then I switched and came here and I went to uni, University High School. Okay. For about five days and I dropped out. And then? And then I did home study my last year. All right. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. Oh. Why did you drop out? You just showed up and were like, uh uh-uh. It was like 4,000 kids and Uh I could not even. Where where is uni? Uni is in Westwood. Okay. It's, you know, it's a good high school. It's one of the better public high schools here. Okay. Um, But it was so beyond what I was able to do. Well, Los Angeles versus Fairfield, that's a big adjustment. Yeah, and I was kind of like a great public education education system. So I, 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 for me, like the way that the kids treated their teachers, all of it was just like bananas for me. I could not believe I mean, they were like yelling at their teacher. I think they threw stuff at him. I mean, it was just beyond for me. Wow. 
And it was a real big pain. You're like, guys, guys, we're trying to generate peace here. Exactly. No, I should say that I got suspended from Fairfield High School for getting in a girl fight. So it wasn't like I was a saint. Fist fight? Yeah. You win? I did. Okay. That doesn't surprise me somehow. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think you're losing. If it comes to that, I think you're winning. Exactly. I didn't start the fight, but I finished it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, okay. So take me like into your adult years. Like how long, I mean, because you sort of come back to it. And I think that's kind of what the story of this book is. It's like, you know, you're, 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 you're kind of born into it. You're raised in it. You move away from it. And then you're kind of making some peace with it. And I'm making like, peace with it. I wouldn't say I'm coming back to it. Well, back in, in a middle ground way. I'm, this like, is touchy for me because I've talked to people. I just was back in Fairfield a couple of weeks ago. and How did that go? Well, it was a mixed <laughs> bag. People know this book is, is coming. They do. And I, I was braced for a reaction but not the kind of stuff that i got and it pisses me off you know i mean i'm what the people were like unkind about it or uh you know i mean there was definitely there's a yeah there's some people were really nice um and said really nice things you know i did two radio shows there but people haven't read it or are there, yeah, the, are there like under like you know underground copies there's not, not really underground copies i was pretty good about that all right um no, it's mostly people's idea of what it would be. They're mad about a book they haven't even read yet. Yes. But isn't that like America? I was going to say, it sounds like the Republicans. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were a few people that said things that really got under my skin. You know, like, oh, Claire, you know, I was really happy to hear that you finally took the city's course. Because when I first met you, you really seemed like a cynic. And to me, I'm like, well, I am a cynic. You're I'm like, still a cynic. I'm an amazing cynic. <laughs> I'm an incredible cynic. It's <laughs> my I, gift. Yeah. Like, don't take that away from me. I'm not like some person who realized everything was wrong. I mean, there was, I saw there was like a guy who from Fairfield who wrote something on my Facebook page that was like, Claire stopped meditating, started doing drugs and found that she didn't have support of nature anymore. Big surprise. <laughs> Damn. Mm-hmm. Which, but, is that a haiku? It was amazing. I'm, I am like I, I, I wanted it for my book jacket. Yeah, right, big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, yeah, and like, so let's talk about you doing drugs. <laughs> okay. You know, because you, you live this sort of pure life, yes. like well, the life of a child. Most children are not doing tons of drugs, at least until they get to their adolescence. That's not what I heard about your kids. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you when did you start to do drugs? What were your like? Did you have any really um, powerful experiences. Of course. Okay. Like, like what happened? Well, I would say, you know, at the Mariushi school, there wasn't really a lot of sex education and people, they, our parents didn't really talk about sex or drugs cause that wasn't part of the ideal way of life. Um, but an interesting and strange fact is that I think a lot of our parents probably got into TM because of doing hallucinogenic drugs. Right. Right. I mean, it's like what the Beatles did where they were doing, LSD and they wanted something that felt like they could hold on to and do forever that wasn't a drug. And What's the connection? Is it just that like when you're on uh, LSD or mushrooms and you're in, you know, in a hallucinatory state or whatever that you're in a hyper present state? It's that like heightened awareness. Yeah, I think it's heightened awareness and feeling like you're seeing the truth about the world. Um, so yeah, I think all of us were really curious and we seemed to find it very easily. So, I mean, I was, I still think I started drinking, doing drugs when I was 14. Okay. 
that went when you liked it right away? It wasn't like, I don't want to portray myself as like some crazy kid. I was really rebellious. Um, but, you know, I got good grades and that's often a good cover. Yeah. Um, and I was respectful and you weren't, you didn't go overboard. I, I, I compartmentalized it. Yeah. I would sneak out at night. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. You know, but I sort of had my shit together. Yeah. As long as you have your shit together, no one messes with you. My brother was much more like confrontational about it. Uh-huh. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> he was grounded all the time and I was definitely like a much worse kid. And did you have a uh, powerful, like, did you, did you have like a, um, an experience with hallucinogens that like made TM and Fairfield and your parents make more sense? Like yes. retroactively, we're like, oh, this is what. This is what got them on this path. Absolutely. That happened to you. That definitely happened to me. I snuck out and did acid and swam in quarries at night and mm-hmm. was like, okay, this is it. I get it. Have you done anything like that since? I mean, did you have, was that like a childhood thing and then you left it in your past or have you revisited it? Because uh, I, and I say this as, <laughs> as a person who like, I am, people who listen to this show know that I'm constantly talking about like wanting to revisit I think it might be a courage issue or I just right. don't have access to the time. Yeah. But there's part of me that has like a, a real deep affection for those experiences because I feel like they really had a powerful impact on me. And yet there's also the cynical part of me that's like, don't overstate it. This might be magical thinking or, right. do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, I go back and forth, but there's a part of me that wants to revisit it as an older person to see what's what. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to figure out really controlled ways to have those experiences now because you have so many more responsibilities. Yeah. And you don't want to ever feel like you're putting your life or the people you're responsible for in, in danger. So, I, you know, I think you can do it. I think you have to be very careful and smart about it. Yeah. That's a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> but but don't have your baby in the Bjorn, you know, while you're... Right. That's all I'm advising. That's it. I mean, I, I think also your brain changes when you get older and it's harder to mess around with it. I feel much more protective of my brain. Right. Um, it's not something. It's not as elastic or something as it used to be. Yeah. I mean, I used to take all kinds of risks. I, I don't do that now. It's I'm, amazing to me that, like, I feel lucky that I got out yeah. of my like late adolescence. Yeah. You know, those years between like 18 and 22, especially I'm like, Oof, I know. And look, a lot could have gone wrong. And yeah. now we have kids and it's like, Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean more like, look, like you have a beautiful wife and a beautiful family oh, yeah. and a nice home. It turned out, but I mean, yeah. I feel lucky. Do listeners of the show know that your wife is totally awesome? I think they, they hopefully know. Yeah. You know, she's, she's the better one. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it's true. Everyone <laughs> likes her better. Um, that's not true. I like you guys a lot. You do? Yeah. Uh, we should say, yeah. I think, I mean, I'll probably say this in the intro to the show, so this might be a repetition, but we are friends. We are friends. Uh, our daughters went to school together. They did. I miss those days. I know. So you wrote this book. You understand yourself better? I mean, I know it's a corny <laughs> thing to ask somebody, but do you, do you have like a better grip on you? Because clearly you wrote it because you were unclear, uh, at least to some degree. I think that's why we write books. We want to um, figure out what we know. Yeah. You know, so did it help you get a handle on it? I think so. I mean, I think, as I said, you know, I, I think I was really trying to figure out human nature um, and what happened in Fairfield at that point in time. It was a real moment in time, and what felt like happened was very specific. Um, 
And I feel like I have a clearer and much more empathetic and generous view of that. And by I, the way, I didn't ask you, like, when did you come back to saying, like, oh, I'm going to do my meditation again? Did that ever leave you? Like, when you walked away, that was it. You kind of just went off and, and had your, like, wild years or whatever, and you were away from it, and then you came back and said, I'm going to try to do this again? Um, first of all, I have to say, like, <laughs> I feel like in case somebody that I grew up with or people who've known me my whole life... I had wild years. They weren't that wild. You know, like I've always been like, I went to college, then I went to grad school. I had you went a to job. divinity school. I went to divinity <laughs> school. Like I, when I first met my husband, he still jokes about this, that I talked to him about like the meth scene in Fairfield on our first date. And he thought I was this like meth head. <laughs> and then like, since he's gotten to know me, he's like, what were you talking about? Like, what were you doing? I, did you ever read that book? Methland? No. It's like it's all it's like a case study, nonfiction, but it's about a town. It's like Ulwine, Iowa. Yeah. Well Iowa, mid nineties, hotbed of meth. I mean yeah. this is this was part of why I left. Yeah, it was intense. I had a lot of friends who got very into it. And and mostly all emerged fine, so Really? Yeah, but they're like wearing wires and getting in car accidents and like I mean crazy stuff. Sure. Um but I meditated always. I've always meditated. So if I've been nervous about something or anxious or I'm on the plane and it seems like it might crash or... Everybody I, meditates yeah, when the plane exactly. might crash. Exactly. It's not what everyone else is doing. <laughs> That's when I really like meditating. Um, you know, when I'm sick, when I have a house guest, you know, I mean, there's all... I've always meditated. I think when I wrote the book, I figured out that I'd meditated something like 2,200 hours in my life. I sat down and like thought about each year and did like an average and yeah, it's certainly more now. I have an app now. I'm on like 236 consecutive days. Nice. Oh, yeah. good job. Is the app Headspace? No, no. It's just like the timer. Or something. Oh, the Samsara. I don't know. Sorry, I just it says like it's it, the the tagline is peace in our timer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just I mean it's literally just a timer, you know. Yeah. But it keeps track and like I like that it keeps track because you're like oh I don't want to miss I don't want to like break the streak you know? right so it keeps me going. Yeah, I, there's a, all sorts of like psychology behind that. They they've used gaming technology to get people to achieve things. Well, you know, I don't think. I mean, it does require a little discipline. Yeah, you know, but it's like it's like flossing. Mm -hmm. I, that's what I kind of compare it to. Like, I'm I'm, I'm a big flosser. Yeah. I wasn't always, but then I like years ago I started, and now I feel weird if I don't do it. Yeah, and I think this is sort of like the. The flossing of the spirit. <laughs> yes. I, I, if I'm on a real streak and I don't meditate, I feel very vulnerable and sleepy Yeah, and, and anxious. And yeah. And it, it gets away from me. Like I've always like characterized it to myself and to like other people when like they'll tolerate me talking about it as like foundational. Yeah. Like it's, it's the foundation and like good things happen when I take care of it. Yeah. And if I let it get away from me, I'm not my best self. I mean, you're making me want to meditate right now. Let's, let's just do it. <laughs> The next 15 minutes of this interview will just be just blissful silence. silence. I don't have a fucking mantra though. I got to, maybe I got to get one. I know I can, I can do you think, you on that. do you think that it's a better form of meditation? Do you think TM is an elite technology? No, no. I think that whatever works for you works for you. Yeah. I have tried other kinds of meditation and for me, TM is very easy, mm -hmm. but I've been doing it since I was three, so I can never be sure. I mean, I, you know, I, my husband learned a couple of years ago. How does he like it? He likes it. He feels, I mean, it, he would really like kind of help me because, you know, he feels, you know, he'll meditate like three times in a week for 10 minutes and then I'll like 
tell everyone about him meditating and how great it is and how good he feels about it. And for me, I was much more like almost like a Catholic with my meditation where it's like, if I didn't meditate the full 20 or 30 minutes in the morning and the full 20 or 30 minutes a day, I felt bad and guilty. And so people would say, are you a meditator? And I say, not, not anymore. Even though I had like <laughs> meditated 10 minutes that day, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, I'm not good enough. Yeah. And he, uh, just was so much more flexible about it. And he had a really great teacher. Yep. Um, you got to be, especially when you have kids and like the variability of life work. Oh, yeah. Like if you start to get rigid and say like, if it's not 20, it's not real. Yeah. You're setting yourself up to feel like shit. Yeah. You know? And it's like, I go through that though, because, um, it's very rare that I can sit down in my current state of existence without feeling rushed. Right. Like it's like, or if I'm sitting down, I'm thinking like, oh, you know, Carrie's got the kids. She's like looking at her watch, like going, when is he going to finish? You know, it can start yeah. to feel like all right, I got to pick this up. And I'm always sort of like watching the clock. Yeah. And it's nice when I, I, you know, the rare occasion when I don't do that. Yeah. You know, but it's just, that's the nature of life when you're uh, living in the real world or living in the universe, you know, it's just, uh, unless you live in like Kauai and, right. you know, on a hillside, which sounds wonderful. <laughs> I just, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> let's move the families. I think, you know, I mean, one thing that I see that meditation has given me is, I am really good at checking out, like almost to like a frightening degree. So like you just said that like, oh, to sit down and not think about it. And I was like, oh yeah, I've, I haven't thought about anything else except for this podcast right now. Like I can completely check out yeah. of everything else, but focus. then when, I guess that's focus, but even, you know, like I'm really good at going on vacation. It's one of the great qualities about me. I go on vacation. I don't really think about anything else back home and I've learned through marriage that some people don't have that quality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think about that other stuff. Like I, it's very easy for me to go into like full relaxation. That's great. Yeah. That's an awesome skill. It's my skill. That's yeah. my skill. I don't have a lot of them, but that's, well, but that's it's, it. it strikes me as like you can concentrate. Um, yeah, it's concentration. I do think it's good for concentration and I think it's, uh, just, the ability to suddenly not give a fuck at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's my incredible gift. Well, thank I, you, Marishi. Yeah. On that, <laughs> on that note, um, I just want to say again, congratulations on the book. I'm really, really happy for you and proud of you. It's an awesome, uh, achievement and I wish you well. You're getting ready to go on tour. Where are you going? I am. I'm going to New York and then Santa Cruz okay, and then back here. What are the dates? When are you going to be in New York City and where? I am going to New York tomorrow, June 7th through the 10th. Okay. Give and an event and we can plug it. Yeah. We're going to, um, I'm doing a reading at the Barnes and Noble Tribeca okay. on June 9th at right. 6 p.m. All right. And then Santa Cruz? Santa Cruz, I am giving my college commencement speech. Oh, look at you. <laughs> I mean, you just get, you publish this book and suddenly they're asking you to be the commencement speaker. I think they asked me before they knew I had a book. They, the publisher almost didn't want me to do it because it was sort of in the middle of all this and it's not really selling books, but I was sort of like, uh, this is not going to happen again. Is it open to the public? I don't know. Or is it just for family? I guess, I guess it sort of is, right? I think it probably is, but I'm, I'm not guessing a lot of people are going to flock to hear my commencement <laughs> speech. Are you doing a public reading anywhere else? Like in LA or are you going to do like a bookstore events or anything? Um, TBD. TBD. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, congratulations. Enjoy it. Uh, I hope that the backlash, if there is such a thing, isn't, I don't think there should be, but sometimes people get touchy. 
People uh, are touchy. You're going to hear from people probably, right? Yeah. On Facebook. Facebook. Surprise. The best. Maybe I won't <laughs> go on Facebook for 10 days. Yeah. That, that sounds like, yeah, you can tune that out. You know, maybe I'll do Use that. Use your incredible powers of focus and concentration. To just, yeah. You know. There's a, a thing called the Ulysses contract. Have you heard of this? No. Where I've heard about this from a neuroscientist, but he says like, college kids do this around exam time where they'll give their password to their friend for Facebook and have them sign them out and change the password so you can't get in. Oh. It's sort of like tying yourself to the mast, yeah, right? Like yeah. making a decision for your better self. So I might do that That's right it. now. You should. <laughs> well, listen, good luck. Congratulations. Thank you. All right, guys, there you have it. What do you think of that? That's Claire Hoffman. Go get her memoir. It's called Greetings from Utopia Park. It's out there now from Harper in a fine hardcover edition. I believe it's also available as an electronic book, possibly an audio book. It's out there. Track it down. You can find Claire on the uh, Internet at ClaireHoffman.com. She's on Twitter where her handle is at Claire D, as in Denise Hoffman, at Claire D. Hoffman on Twitter. She's also on Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com kill rockstars uh, is responsible for the music that you're hearing right now listen don't forget that this podcast has its own official app it's the other people with brad listy app it's available for free wherever you get your apps it's a free app go get the app get the app on your device it's the best and most elegant way to listen to this show here's how it works you ready okay you get the app and when you get the app uh, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge free of charge the most recent 50 you get the most recent 50 for free new episodes automatically upload to the app you don't have to do anything they appear there as if by magic you can download episodes to listen to while you're offline you can favorite your favorite episodes it's very user friendly and then uh you know if you want to get at the deep archives if you want access to all of the episodes more than 400 episodes and counting if you want to hear my conversations with authors like cheryl strade sheila hetty uh george saunders david shields hilton owls Tao Lin, Tom Parada, Jonathan Leatham, Amy Bender, Susan Orlean, the list goes on. If you want to hear all of them, you want to get access to all of them, have them available anywhere you go at your fingertips, you just sign up for Other People Premium. It's a subscription service. It's a great way to support the show, and it costs 75 cents a month. That's it. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. 75 cents a month. Three quarters. So maybe do that if you're interested. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. You can uh, tell me a story. I love stories. You can also complain. Troll me. I'm going to be packing for the next week. A lot of dust. I'm going to be inhaling dust. Huffing dust. I want it to be over with. Just get it over with. Need to make the transition. Please remember that Leo Tolstoy had an illegitimate son whom he never acknowledged and that Edith Wharton once referred to Ulysses as, quote, schoolboy drivel. That's it for now. Thanks to Claire Hoffman. Go get greetings from Utopia Park. Support her. Debut memoirist. Get your copy. Purchase it. Read it in public. Read it on the subway. Smile while reading Greetings from Utopia Park. Cry. Weep openly in public. 
have a transcendent reading experience in public. Tell strangers. Thanks to you guys for listening. You know I appreciate it. I'll be back next week. What's your mantra? Seriously. <laughs>